You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today we have Neil Bao, real estate investor, syndicator, with amazing journey in raising capital, public speaker, and marketing mogul focusing on multifamily real estate investment. Please help me to welcome our guest today. How are you, Neil? Fantastic, Adam. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks a lot. I would like to start with the beginnings uh, from Silicon Valley to multifamily. What was the beginning for you? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a data nerd. I'm a geek, uh, computer science degree, uh, data scientist background. You know, the typical tech career, working 70 hours a week, run doing the rat race and yeah. doing it for a while. Um, did it for basically from 1999 to 2013 when my, I, I was able to sell my technology company. I was a partner in a company. Yeah. And uh, during that time, uh, because I live in Taxifornia and I was paying 52% a year in taxes, wow. yeah. I became aware of the benefits of real estate when it comes to depreciation and tax yeah. Um, avoidance and uh, it really, you know, started playing with it myself um, over that time frame between 28, 2008 and 2014. I did real estate for my own personal portfolio for about six years. And during that time, I started also teaching uh, others about data science in real estate. I think I must have presented at hundreds of meetups during that time, podcasts, um, also some conferences, and people would always say, hey, why aren't you in real estate? What, you know, what do you sell? And the answer is, no, I'm in technology. I don't have anything to sell. I just do this for myself, and I share my, my, my data science. And more and more people would come to me and say, if you ever do this, I'd, we'd love to work with you. So eventually, I ended up with a big database uh, that I'd never used. And so once I sold my company, I tried to retire. That was very boring. So I switched over into real estate full time mm. and, you know, thought of it as something that I would engage in and do a little bit of a hobby, maybe even grow my own uh, portfolio. Mm. And I mean, it just sort of snowballed. They, we went from, you know, one project to 31 projects. You know, we, we've invested in 17 metro areas. Mm. Uh, we have well over 800 active investors that have invested in our projects. The portfolio is just about at a billion dollars at this point. And uh, it really snowballed because of this desire to apply uh, technology and data science to real estate. That's really, you know, that describes everything that we do. So I can give you, I can talk for the next two hours, but it, it will come back to this one statement. We apply data science to real estate. How? So there's hundreds of different ways of doing it, right? So there's tons and tons and tons of different ways of doing it. The first and most obvious way of doing it is you basically take a database of every city and every corridor and every state in the United States. Yeah. And you basically create probabilistic uh, measurements that show which city is going to have the highest increases in, in home prices. Now you might say, you know, oh, you're in multifamily. What does that have to do with home prices? So my research over the last, you know, from 2008 to, to now, so about 14 years of research showed that there is an extraordinarily strong correlation between single family home price increases and multifamily rent increases 12 mm. months later, mm. 12 months later, right? So home prices go up first. So basically we have in, in multifamily, we have a crystal ball and that crystal ball is called home price increases, yeah. right? 
So now we have 12 months to immediately get into the market now because we're about to see a massive increase in, in, in uh, rent prices as homes go up. And so I became very obsessed with the idea of tracking uh, the probability of home price increases in markets. And then I realized that a lot of people knew about those in larger markets, you know, whether it's Phoenix or Austin or, or you know, there's some of the big markets, Atlanta, you know, um, obviously California, New York, mm. but nobody knew anything about home price increases in smaller markets. People did not understand them. Like, for example, people will come on to Adam's show and say things like, Tucson is a great market. And then they will say, Jacksonville is a great market, right? And then they'll say, San Antonio is a great market. I don't say that because it means nothing. They're all great markets, but it's possible that Jacksonville this year will have 10% home price increases. Hmm. San Antonio will have 20 and Tucson will have 30. Now, technically the person said, what he said was right because any market that has a 10% home price increase is a great market. And if you invest in multifamily in that market, you will do well in the future. Correct. But did you see the difference? 10%, 20%, and 30%. So one of those three markets was three times better than the other market, even though all three were great. Yes. My obsession is about figuring out exactly which ones are the best. And I don't particularly care about the size of the market simply because the smaller markets tend to have faster growth and they have more yield. Hmm. And I understand that there's a higher risk there, but I have told my investors that I am managing that risk for them. So my investors are okay with investing in markets that most of your listeners haven't even heard of, right? So, People have given me massive amounts of money to build in uh, Washington, Utah, which is a city of 22,000 people, yeah. or Idaho Falls, which is a metro of 110,000 people, because mm. the data science said those cities are so strong that they were protected from a recession, that we wouldn't lose money, right? We would probably make, you know, wouldn't make money if there was a, a very harsh recession during the time that we were building mm. or, or owning there. But the upside was phenomenal. And so we've been able to, on seven exits, do 36 IRR, over 40% annualized returns, because we followed the data science and went to places that most people are terrified to go to. So I think what you're saying is making sense because me personally, for example, I look on CPRE, M&M, maybe other websites, the focus always on this report is about the major markets on, on, like for example, Nashville and Memphis, but no one is talking about anything else than this on Tennessee. When you're talking yes. about uh, North Carolina, it's only Charlotte. And, and Raleigh. Yeah, but w w uh, other markets, uh, nothing. Georgia. Yeah, I mean, it, think about it. Like Asheville is an incredible market. So is Winston-Salem. But how many people at conferences ever talk about Asheville or Winston-Salem? There's actually some markets smaller than Asheville and Winston-Salem in North Carolina that are better markets than even Asheville. And Asheville is the third largest market. So in almost every state except for Texas, people just stop at the top two, right? If it's Georgia, it's just Atlanta. If it's Texas, it's Dallas and, and, and Austin, maybe, maybe Houston. But what about smaller markets like New Braunfels and San Marcos and Killeen and Fredericksburg are the best markets in Texas? I never heard of right? them. Are the best markets in Texas, right? Yeah. Period. Simply because there aren't 300 people trying to buy every goddamn building yeah. in, yeah. in, in Killeen. Yeah. 
hundred percent. Agree, agree. But how you manage to create this? Like me personally, as a as a syndicator, I look on CPRE uh, and MMM. But how you manage to have a system to get this result? But CPRE has no interest in these markets, right? Yeah. So CBRE, what is CBRE trying to do? They're trying to convince the the syndicators. They're trying to convince Adam Rass hmm. to read their document. And then go bid on a property in Atlanta because the property in Atlanta on a price per door basis is probably, you know, twice as high as some of the places yeah. that I'm bidding on. So obviously CBRE wants you to stay in these main markets and bid up the properties as much as possible. So there's 20 of you trying to kill each other buying one property. That's CBRE's goal. That's Marcus and Milchap's goal. So why yeah. the hell would they would they list these smaller properties? The short answer is I don't know of any you know, paid data sources. Same thing with CoStar. CoStar doesn't really give yeah, you enough yeah. data on on these smaller markets. Though they do, they they're better off, better than some of these others. Yeah. So you can get decent data in these smaller markets from from CoStar. Yeah. So one is sure, look at CoStar. The second is build your own database, and that's why I, I tell people I am not in the real estate business. I'm in the business of disruptive technology, of big data, of data science. Mm. Right. So the answer is you build it yourself. So we spider data throughout mm. the web. We grab the data from lots and lots of different sources. We pay for sources. So there's data sources that we pay for uh, neighborhood scout for a neighborhood level, yeah. Le, yeah. you know, a local market monitor for a, a national level and many others. So what we do is we take data from many different sources. We clean it right to make sure that the edge data, the bad data is cleaned out. Yeah. And then what we do is we create our own benchmarks based on our investing philosophy. We create both fundamentals and momentum-based benchmarks. So fundamentals investing is like Warren Buffett. You know, he buys stocks when they're cheap, right? Yeah. Momentum, in, momentum investing is like, what's her name, Kathy, whatever, you know, buying technology stocks because she knows that they're going to go up and when they go up and, and they're about to come down, then she sells them. So there's a lot of people doing momentum investing. So we assign both momentum scores and fundamentals mental scores hmm. and we try to look for small markets that are fundamentally strong yeah. but momentum wise are extremely strong so momentum in the end beats you know fundamentals so we want the underlying fundamentals to be strong so that if there is a crash we won't lose money we probably won't make money yeah. and then we want extraordinary momentum in those markets. So momentum can be tracked in lots of different ways, population growth, home price growth, income yep. growth, job growth, uh, crime reduction. Uh, you know, All of those are ways of figuring out what the momentum of a market is, hmm. but we want the underlying fundamentals to be pretty strong. So right now, oddly enough, a mar like a, a mar one of the top markets in the United States is Rogers, Arkansas. And mm. no one has ever, goddammit, heard of Rogers, Arkansas. You might have heard of Little Rock, where, yeah. where Walmart is, but nobody's heard of Rogers, Arkansas. But I know that market is extraordinarily strong. If you go into that market at this point in time, the chances that you lose money are very, very low, right? And I don't particularly like Arkansas. It is not a, a popular state. In my list of favorite states, Arkansas is nowhere in the top 20, right? <laughs> and there's only 50 states in the country, but the market is incredible, yeah. right? So there, these phenomena occur on a daily basis no one knows that they occur they're extraordinarily powerful and this is why there is no data science in real estate i think costar is the best example of the use of yeah. data science in real estate and they're yeah. pretty expensive yeah. um and, but i think that there you can actually do more than that and even costar even costar has a very strong bias towards major metros because you know they they they're trying to their their biggest audience are people that have billions of dollars to invest yeah. So obviously they want the lowest level of risk, 
right? And mm -hmm. my investors are okay with not being at that lowest level of risk. They know that I'm using cutting edge data science. And if they invest in enough of my projects, I'll make it up. So a lot of my investors are invested in five, six, seven, ten 10 projects, right? I've done 31 of them. So I think that when you even it out, you can see the track record on the homepage of my website. You know, mm. you can't really hide track records. Um, and, and some of the, I'm very keenly aware that mm. a substantial portion of my track record, let's say one third of my returns are because of the all ships rising effect that we've seen in the last two or three years. Everybody's returns were, you know, raised by that. But in my case though, the all ships rising effect has been stronger than it has been for others because of my obsession with, I don't want to go to a great metro. I just want to know how great, right? And I want to be able to measure every single metro and, and figure out which ones are the great test and go invest in them and never touch the, the hottest metros because there's too many people like Adam running around trying to buy property in there. Mm. Go to the ones that are one level below, but are still the hardest. Yeah, so market fundamentals have to be strong to have a bulletproof plan during the recession. I like this. So the whole but goal I is think to keep your... It is a small market though. So keep in mind, I mean, I, I don't want to overplay this. I don't want to bullshit anybody, right? So yeah. it, smaller markets get hit stronger during recessions. Yeah. So the goal is that if there is a recession like 2008, not the sort of recession we're about to get, by the way, the US is going to enter into a recession, I think in the next 12 months. Yeah. So... But but those are forced recessions. The Fed is forcing us into a recession to slow inflation down. They've done it many times before in the last 60 years, nine times actually. Yeah. So those kinds of recessions tend to be shallow because the Fed basically stops pounding the economy right before they're about to enter into inflation, making the inflation shallow, and then they support it on the way back up. Mm. So you know, bottom line is that if there was a 2008 type recession, I want to make sure that the market that I'm in doesn't lose investor money, right? Yes. It's not right. So, so if there was that kind of 2008 recession, and if you if you were in like a place like Phoenix or Austin, you know, super strong markets, yeah. you'd probably do better than me because you know my market's going to get hit harder than than Austin would, right? But on the upside, I can make more money than you can in Austin if if the market is reasonable or it's not a 2008 type recession. So hmm. that's really what the, the the what my investors are after. Medium risk. Medium risk. Yeah, absolutely. So I completely describe myself as, look, I'm a medium risk invest, you know, uh, uh, investor. Hmm. Please do not think of me as the guy that takes the least amount of risk or is the most amount, most conservative. I, I can refer you to a bunch of people that I think are more conservative than me. And, and if that's your risk profile, go with them, right? Yeah. If your your profile is to use data science to minimize the risk, but not make it, you know, minimal minimal risk. Mm. Then I'm a I'm a great syndicator. I'm to your work guy. With. So yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely your guy. <laughs> so, um, what is the major upside of your markets? Say that. Say that again. What is the major upside of your markets? Um, major. The short one. answer is the vast majority of syndicators are not chasing products there, so the product doesn't get bid up as much. So whether it's value add or new construction, the other piece of it is. I have some very unique ways of building new construction product at much lower than other people's costs. So secret, let's call it my secret sauce. And so I'm able to build a product that even in today's market, and this is what I'm about to say is not an exaggeration. In today's market with shockingly high interest rates, I have investors 
that even with those interest rates are outperforming the marketplace. One, less competition. Second, ability to build at much lower you know, costs per door, per, per square foot. Um, and, and third, that market was selected for extraordinary job growth, home price growth, population growth, and income growth. Mm. Those are the four mm. that I tend to focus on the most. And so it already had massive tailwinds. So you mentioned something now that uh, you have a diverse uh, portfolio. So what is more you're leaning to buy and hold or pre-development and development projects or both? Um, so 70% of my portfolio is some kind of development. And it's and you know it's, it's five or six different kinds of developments. I do modular developments where I build, mm-hmm. uh, build off-site and basically ship it to the site. I do student housing developments. I do um, uh, fourplex development. I do townhome for sale development. So very, many different kinds of developments is about 70% of my portfolio. The remaining 30% of my portfolio is value-add and super value-add. I'm the only super value-add syndicator in the US. No one else has ever completed multiple super value-add projects. Uh, can we focus on this part? What is a super super value-add you mean? Value-add sure. is, yeah. is a strategy where you work with the city um, that you, you know, the city officials to increase the number of units in the property that you've already purchased. So a value-add property that you purchased hmm. and then build more units. Because if you build 20% more units, you get 50% increase in NOI. A 50% increase in NOI is a 50% increase in the, the selling price of the property, right? Because hmm. Because, you know, selling price for multifamily is cap rate multiplied by NOI. So if NOI goes up 50%, price goes up 50%. Yeah. You might say, how can 20% of the units make the price go up by, by 50%? Well, because none of your other costs change, yeah. right? You, yeah. you don't add more property managers, you know, even your, your um, in many cases, your property uh, taxes don't reset because the property square footage doesn't increase. Not always, most of the time it doesn't. And even if it does, it won't reset for a number of years. So your all of that money that's coming in is going straight to cash flow. Your land is free because you're building inside your own property. Yep. Your parking is free, and uh, your utilities are free because they're, they're they're already inside the property, right? So the the most people don't know this, but horizontal construction costs a great deal of money before you even go vertical, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that work is now done for you because you're building inside your own property by yeah. convincing the city to add more units. So. We've done two super value pro- ad projects. One is was was in Arkansas, um, and the other one was in um, Georgia, and both exited at explosive returns. So, uh, when you're approaching the municipalities about this, what was uh, like as uh, the target plan here to convince the municipality is um, providing so more? You- yeah, well, on. firstly, so you can firstly upzone the property. So let's say that they had a 24 unit per acre zoning, which is pretty common for multifamily. You can convince them to go up to 30 units an acre or 36 units an acre. Second, uh, if you're lucky enough and you know how exactly to do it, this requires a full-time person, by the way. So I have a, I have a person who only does this, is that every time you look at a value-add property that comes to the market, and we look at about 85 a, a week, so we do, we all all in, we receive 4,000 properties per, per year. Yeah. And so when you're looking at them early on, if you know, if obviously it's not a good area, then you reject it that way. 
But if it's a good area and the numbers are not working and you really like the property, then you basically start this process of calling the city to determine. And this works, by the way, for 80s property. It does not work for a newer property than that. But in, in the 80s, land was so cheap in the United States that sometimes people would build less units than they could mm. simply because some of the units were on a slope. So on a slope in the 80s, they were like, oh, this is going to cost me $20,000 per more per unit. I'm just going to leave those as, as you know, kind of walking areas and, and trails and things like that. What today, firstly, the cost of building on slopes has dropped because we have more machinery and more technology on how to cut them. Yeah. Um, and second, the land has become so expensive. Zoned land has become so expensive. And remember, by default, the property is already zoned multifamily. So you don't yeah. have to zone it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now... People like me can go and build on that additional space, right? Even yeah. if it's sloped. So the, the, the economics have changed because back in the 80s when properties were being built, they were building them at sixty dollars to $70,000 a unit. We're now building at $250,000 a unit. So yeah. the economics are different. So super value add basically allows us to engage cities and then engage our development division. The reason that no syndicator has done it in the US is you need a full-size development team and you'd never be able to make the financials work based on super value add because you're only doing 20 or 30 units and you can't hire a development team to do 30 units. Luckily, I'm a developer. I have 1,500 units under development. So that same development team that builds my 1,500 units also as a side gig is doing these 30 or 40 units in the super value adds. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, this was basically my next question is how you managed to partner with the developer, but, but you're saying that you have your own team already. No, we, we, we don't partner. We, we are a developer. We are a full stack developer with an in-house development okay. team. Okay. So uh, as you mentioned, it's 70% on micro strategies or a big project. So you do mainly micro strategies when you split uh, acres or land to small lots or mainly on a big project like townhouses and, and so on? Um, all of them, really. So we, we've, you know, we just, uh, you know, decided not to exit a project because, you know, the interest rates went up, but it was, it was selling at about 34% IRR. And that was just a regular apartment complex that we built in Utah. It was 115 units on five acres. So just very middle of the road. Same thing with uh, the, the grid, which we built a 210 unit uh, student housing facility in Buffalo. Uh, and then we do some very exotic stuff like fourplex townhomes, you know, almost 35, 40 uh, units to an acre. Uh, and those can be built in the middle of cities. So hmm. we, we build both, you know, very, uh, very dense projects in the middle of cities. And then we also build less dense projects on the outskirt of cities where the land is cheaper. So 100%. we, we, we we're right now leasing up a, uh, a townhome project that's only 12 units to an acre. So it's low density. Whereas we have another unit in con uh, project in construction in Houston called Park Lane, which is 40 units an acre. Mm. So that's, you know, the, the answer is I, I, I do fairly large projects on very tiny pieces of land. Mm. And I also do fairly large projects uh, on pretty big pieces of land. It just depends on the city and on what the cost of the land is. But the strength here is you have your own development team. He's, he, he studies the actual municipality requirement and they play on this. Yes, uh, a bunch of people, right? So we've got an entire <laughs> yeah. set. So we have one full-time employee just looking for land, right? So okay. she, her job is just constantly eight hours a day, call every single broker in the U.S. and look for land. Mm. 
-hmm. And then then um, we have one person whose job is to just take a look at land, make offers, put it in the contract for nine months, and then figure out if we can zone it. Oh, right. Okay. So that person's job is to zone it. And then we have one person that takes it from zoning all the way to pre-construction. Mm -hmm. And then we have a team that takes it from pre-construction all the way to the end of construction. And then we have a dedicated leasing team that leases them up. So five uh, separate teams on the development side. So my final or fun question was then between 2014 to now is almost eight years. How do you yeah. define your superpower? Uh, our, my biggest superpower is simply this. I'm obsessed with the use of technology hmm. to accelerate returns. So my company currently uses over 600 automations, 600 hmm. automations. We have built a internal team in the Philippines of 22 employees, all full time, all mm. working our time. So they, they all work Pacific Standard Time. And mm. so we combine that 22 person virtual assistant team with a 137 software stack mm. to create massive efficiency and scale. And that scale allows us to both raise money almost there's one company in, in our space that raises it faster than us. They're better known than us, uh, but we are the second best at raising money. We've raised a quarter million dollars in the last four years, uh, last three years. Um, uh, yeah. So basically a quarter billion. So yeah. 250 million. Yeah. Um, and then we have the ability to, to deliver a very large number of projects at the same time. So at this point, there are seven projects delivering on the construction pipeline the value add is running on five projects, some close to completion, some that have just been purchased, and then super value add is running on one. Your weaknesses? Um, I think the, 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 the biggest weakness is that I, uh, because I'm so tied to data, hmm. I lose the advantages that people have of building relationships in one metro. So there are companies that I've given money to as a passive investor, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Nitya Capital, for example, they're in Houston. They've built a, a, an empire in Houston. They went deeper and deeper and deeper into Houston. And now anybody that sells a building in Houston knows to call them first before putting it on market because they'll mm -hmm. give you a, a competitive price. And I think that is something that we lack. We are in 17 metros. We have roots, but we don't have the depth of the roots. And that's really our weakness. We don't have that depth of knowledge and connections in any one metro in the US. Do you prefer to do this? Do you prefer to be just to come on just one metro? No, because I find that that I would not be true to myself. You know, to be true to myself, I have to be able to make this statement. There is no best metro in the US. There's only a best metro this year and a best metro next year. And it's never the same, right? Austin has been in the top three in the last six years. So it's a phenomenal metro. And I, I, I have a lot of projects, not in Austin, around Austin. Remember the strategy? Yeah, 100%. Um, so, but, but even then, I know that Austin's not number one most years, right? So some, mm -hmm. some years Phoenix will beat it, some years Tampa will beat it. Something will always beat it. And so for me to pick, say, and say, I'm just going to be an Austin developer, then, then am I a data scientist? I don't think so. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, my last question would be how the people can follow your success. Um, so I think 
following success is not as important as following our data because every yeah. one of you has the capability of being successful if you have data we live in the age of technology where data that used to cost $25,000 a year in the 80s is now available for 40 bucks a month hmm. so I don't think that you should follow our success. I think you should follow our data. And the best way to do that is simply Google my first and last name. I'm the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So N-E-A-L space Bawa. And then you can add a word that you're interested in. I would suggest a few words that you can add. For example, Neil Bawa virtual assistants will show you how I build offshore teams hmm. with step-by-step -step instructions. Neil Bawa build to rent will show you why I'm more bullish on the build to rent asset class than multifamily. Yeah. Um, Neil Bawa, um, what else? Um, uh, oh yes, Neil Bawa location magic would tell you how I select cities. So the, okay. the process of city, city selection. And there's many others. If you really like what, you know, uh, the data science, you can go and see all of it at multifamily followed by the letter u.com. So multifamilyu.com, we've had 175,000 registrations for our data webinars. Uh, and in a, in a typical year, we have about 30 to 40,000 people that attend our webinars. They are very data driven. They're very nerdy. But hey, um, one comment that I'd like to leave you with is this. So the Bible got it wrong by one letter. It is not the meek that shall inherit the earth. It's the geek. Okay. <laughs> it's the geek. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot for being with us today. And really, I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for having me on, Adam. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks a lot.